everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, Brian Bowling here with me as always is Brandon Odo. Hello. We have a very special guest with us today, Dr. Dale Needham. Uh, he's a professor of pulmonary and critical care medicine and of physical medicine and rehab at the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. He's the director there of the Outcomes After Critical Illness and Surgery group. And clinically, he's an attending in the medicine ICU at Hopkins and the medical director of the critical care uh, physical medicine and rehabilitation program there. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. All right, Dr. Needham. Well, you are on clinical service in the MICU there. Um, You're just starting your week and uh, you come in in the morning and you hear about a 71-year-old male. He has uh, diabetes, some hypertension, uh, COPD, rather mild, um, generally in pretty good health. But he was admitted overnight uh, after four days of a productive cough, a fever, some leukocytosis, let's just say this is not in a time of COVID because that's sort of changing everything these days. Um, but his chest x-ray showed a lobar infiltrate suspicious for pneumonia. So he was diagnosed with suspected community-acquired pneumonia, and he was admitted to the ICU because he was having hypoxia, requiring about six liters of nasal oxygen. Over a night and through the early morning, uh, he had worsening work of breathing, uh, eventually required high flow nasal cannula and some BiPAP. And then um, during the early day, during your shift, you eventually make the decision to intubate him. So uh, he gets intubated easily, receives uh, rocuronium and a push of propofol for his induction. Everything settles down. The nurses turn to you and they say, um, what do you want to do for sedation and analgesia for this guy on the ventilator? Sure. So our nurses probably wouldn't turn to me and ask because we they, they probably would uh, move with our, our regular pattern. So, you know, in the bad old days, you know, when the laryngoscope came out, the nurses already had an infusion of a benzodiazepine and an opioid available. But um, maybe around a decade ago, we did a structured quality improvement project to reduce our use of deep sedation and to reduce delirium to have our patients awake and moving. And as part of that, our uh, standard approach would be to use PRN boluses of an opioid uh, after a patient's been intubated. So uh, the nurses would uh, have an order for, in our ICU, uh, PRN boluses of fentanyl. And there's actually a, a sedation protocol that we can indicate uh, so that the nurses have access to that on a PRN basis. And typically, we find that when a patient's newly intubated, initially, they may need relatively frequent doses. Uh, but then hopefully, uh, the patient will begin to become comfortable and to be wake up, awake and responsive with the endotracheal tube in place. And our default RAS score, our default sedation score, the Richmond Agitation Sedation um, score, the default in our patients would be a RAS score of zero, aiming for our patients to be awake and alert. So you are giving PRN fentanyl for pain or for agitation in the RAS or for both? So we would be doing it for patient comfort. Um, So when the patient's originally waking up from the propofol and the neuromuscular blocker, the patient 
will have a mix of, of, you know, agitation, pain, uh, delirium, and it's really to, to manage all of those things initially, but many of our patients within a relatively short period of time after they, they've uh, woken up from, from their deep sedation, the neuromuscular blocker, then, then we will be doing it for, for the purpose of pain. We, we don't routinely use uh, analgesic to sedate patients. We, we generally want our patients to have a RAS goal of zero and to be awake and alert, but, but to be comfortable. Okay. So once things settle down, you have the, the default assumption that some patients will need analgesia, but there's no particular reason they necessarily need sedation. That, that, that's, that's correct. That would be our, our, our initial attempt with uh, almost all of our patients, particularly if they're not uh, especially sick. Obviously, if somebody is, is crashing, the, the approach may be quite uh, different, but this would be a typical approach for the patient that you described. Okay. And what sorts of doses of fentanyl are you looking at? It probably depends on the age and the body weight, but uh, it may be 25 or 50 micrograms Q1 hour PRN. Uh, if we've got somebody that's larger, somebody that's younger, somebody that uh, has uh, opioid uh, use, then, then the dose may be higher. Uh, when we first started our quality improvement project a long, long time ago, we wanted to make sure that the nurses felt that whatever dose of medication they needed to have the patient comfortable, we would be willing to offer. It's just what we didn't want to do is default to an infusion right away. So, you know, in the early days when we're changing from, from deep sedation routinely in our patients and using infusions uh, originally, I, I would sort of jokingly say to the nurse, I will give you as large as dose you would want, um, as long as it's delivered by Pierre and Bolas. And, and in a joking way, I said, I'll give you 500 micrograms or I'll give you 200 micrograms, uh, Q5 minutes. Um, obviously, I wouldn't write that. And obviously, the nurse wouldn't, wouldn't uh, want that either. But we did that so that we weren't trying to, to give the sensation that we're trying to hold back on making the patient comfortable uh, and, and it wasn't a negotiation. Oh, can I get a larger dose? And, and it just focused on, let's make sure the patient's comfortable and we will give them what they need to be comfortable, but we will do it. We'll try to do it through PRN boluses. And then of course, if the patient's needing frequent PRN boluses, if they're getting the equivalent after they've woken up from, from their deep sedation in the neuromuscular blocker, if they're getting the equivalent of 50 micrograms an hour, every hour PRN, that, then we may in fact change it to an infusion, but, but we shouldn't default by starting with an infusion. Okay. So can do I have, do you have a different approach um, immediately after intubation? If the patient is likely to still be paralyzed, but maybe not sedated, maybe they did in fact receive something very short acting like propofol and let's say rocuronium. Yeah. So, so you're, you're exactly right. I want to circle back to that. So we do need to, to, we never want a patient to be paralyzed and awake. So we do need to recognize what medication was used for neuromuscular blocker. How long do we think it will last and, and make a decision about, you know, if the, if the neuromuscular blocker is going to stick around for a half an hour, then, then uh, do we need to be just liberal with PRN boluses for, for a little while, including, for example, a benzodiazepine? Um, and, and that may be what we do if we need to get somebody through sort of a 30-minute period where they may still be neuromuscular blocked so that they're not awake and, and paralyzed. So you might give them um, 
a hardier push of fentanyl or maybe a, a benzo one time, something like that for that first period. Exactly. That's right. Okay. Okay. And would you routinely re, uh, restrain these patients? So our, our nurses will commonly, but not always have uh, soft wrist restraints on patients when they've got an endotracheal tube, but that doesn't, and, and, and often if the endotracheal tube has just gone in and the patient's going to wake up for the first time after their deep sedation neuromuscular blocker, then uh, the, the nurse may choose to have uh, soft wrist restraints on, especially because there's one nurse for two patients and the patients are in separate rooms, completely separate private rooms. So the nurse may not, will, will, there'll be a period of time where the nurse can't visually watch the patient. But there's a couple of caveats. Some of the patients then after they've woken up even with an endotracheal tube, if they're awake alert, not delirious, then the wrist restraints may come off or the wrist restraints may remain on, but they may be very loosely tied such that if the patient really wanted to extubate themselves, their arms are loosely tied that that, that could happen. But, but of course, if the patient's awake alert, not delirious, they're not going to choose to, to um extubate themselves. And with those loosely tied restraints, it becomes more of a reminder. So if they're, if they're going up to scratch their nose, they've got a little bit of resistance to help remind them, oh, you've got something in your mouth. We don't want you to dislodge that. Okay. All right. So the, the patient clears their paralysis, um, their initial induction, they're waking up, they seem relatively calm and comfortable on the ventilator. When would you start trying to mobilize a patient like this? So it probably depends what time of day the endotracheal tube um, was inserted. And I say that simply because we have, uh, if we're going to involve a physical therapist or an occupational therapist, they work with us seven days a week during daytime hours only. So if the patient was intubated at the beginning of the day, then, uh, and if they have needs for a PT or OT, then they would probably start working with the patient uh, uh, that, that day, the day of intubation. Um, you know, mo most of our patients have uh, a PT treatment within maybe 24 hours of, of them arriving in our ICU uh, if, if they're otherwise physiologically stable for that. But of course, the concept of mobility is not restricted just to, to PTs or OTs. Our nurses will routinely mobilize patients as well. So, so that, that all could, could start on the day of intubation if the patient is awake, alert, uh, and and isn't in you know physiologic distress that they're not like in profound shock or or something. Okay. All right. So things quiet down. Your day goes on. Um, you come back in the next day and you find that this patient um, still on the ventilator and has an FiO two and PEEP requirement and it's not really conducive to extubating him quite yet. But overnight um, and that morning, he became increasingly agitated. And uh, he, he denies any pain, but he is now positive for delirium on the scale that you use. What would you do to escalate his uh, sedation regimen if needed? Uh, would you restrain him at this point? Um, do you make use of sitters to watch them? What's your general approach to this? Sure. So it's probably going to be a multifactorial approach. And uh, it's going to be influenced by the, the nurse that's at the bedside as well and what the nurse feels comfortable and safe with doing because, after all, it's the nurse that's, that's providing the, the direct care for the entire shift. So I wouldn't attempt to make a decision without the input of the nurse, and that's the advantage of you know, multidisciplinary rounding. 
bedside rounding. So uh, the patient at that stage, likely in my ICU, would have soft wrist restraints on, um, and the nurse would decide, you know, whether it's very liberal, like what I described earlier, or not. Um, and and of course, we'd watch carefully if the wrist restraint seemed to be making it worse because the patient's now very agitated, then we would have to take a different approach. We wouldn't, we wouldn't continue to escalate if the restraints are clearly making it worse and worse. We, we would take a different approach, but, but often that's not the case. Uh, it's really our nurses that decide when there would be a, a sitter. This is a, a, a nursing uh, a decision in our hospital, and it comes out of the nursing budget. Uh, so they they decide when the patient meets criteria for that more so than me. Um, and then in terms of medications, we would still want to start with with uh, an opioid. So in my ICU, it would be fentanyl, um, because if the patient's becoming agitated and has delirium, they can't reliably tell us if they've got pain or not. So the first thing that we want to do is and we know that untreated pain can be a source of agitation and delirium. So the first thing we'd want to do is assure ourselves that there's not um, pain that's causing the problem. So we would start with PRN boluses of, of fentanyl in my ICU. We would then, if that's being given frequently, we'd then move to an infusion. And then if the patient uh, is still agitated, then we'd need to think about, and, and at, so is CAM ICU or delirium screening positive? And, and is agitated and, and not safe, you know, we, we can all tolerate a little bit of wiggling around in the bed, but if the patient appears to, to not be safe, then we need to think about what's the next step. So in our ICU, we would typically think about one of two things at this stage. So we've got a, a delirium positive agitated patient. Would we start um, dexmedetomidine as a continuous infusion? And there we'd want to think about the volume that might, uh, the volume of fluid that might come with that, the the heart rate and blood pressure to make sure the patient's not tachycardic or not bradycardic and, and hypotensive, um, or a PRN bolus of an antipsychotic um, that might be, for example, intravenous haloperidol initially, and um, maybe convert it to oral um, second generation antipsychotic, which in my ICU would typically be quetiapine, um, recognizing and reminding ourselves that the use of an antipsychotic, there's no evidence that says that an antipsychotic will either prevent or treat delirium. It will do nothing to, to, to treat that syndrome, but what it likely does treat is, is the symptom of agitation. And if the agitation is, is unsafe for the patient, then we need to, to weigh the risks and benefits. And of course, with the antipsychotic, we, we'd look at the QT interval first, uh, and for example, if the QT interval was prolonged, then then th that would fall off the table and dexmedetomidine would be the more clear choice. Would you turn to benzodiazepines at any point? For instance, PRN pushes of benzos? So so th that may be possible, but it wouldn't be it it wouldn't fall within uh, the first couple of things that we would be doing. We, we'd want to think about non-pharmacologic things, uh, but if the patient is acutely agitated and not safe, those things probably aren't going to act quickly enough. And a sitter can be part of a non-pharmacologic approach. And then we, we would think about uh, dexmedetomidine or antipsychotic ahead of a benzodiazepine, in part because in, in many ways, the benzodiazepine often is like putting fuel on the fire. Um, so we know that one of the biggest modifiable risk factors for delirium 
is the use of sedation, particularly benzodiazepines. So benzodiazepines often can end up making the problem worse. The analogy that I gave about putting fuel on a fire, what, what's not entirely correct about that is that we know if we end up giving enough benzodiazepine that we can extinguish the agitation because we take a patient and we move them from, from having agitated delirium to putting them into coma. Um, so, so we know that we can extinguish the, the agitation, but we're fooling ourselves if we think that that actually gets rid of the delirium. In almost all cases, it simply defers the delirium to somebody else's shift to deal with it when the deep sedation needs to stop because very few patients go from deep sedation from, from a benzodiazepine to alert and calm without passing through a period of delirium often with, with agitation. So that, that's usually not the solution to, to managing this. Although in specific cases, if it's needed for safety after the other things have failed or aren't safe to do, um, or if the patient's having um, a toxidrome or alcohol withdrawal, then that might be something that, that we would consider. And of course, I like that, that you had suggested a, a PRN bolus of a benzodiazepine rather than a continuous infusion, be, because that's, in our approach, that's always the best way to, to start with things. You know, as I often say to, to people on our team, you know, once we give the medication, we can never suck it back out of the patient's body. So it's easier to start low with PRN and to double double the dose and to repeat the PRN rather than give a larger dose, especially for an older frail person, um, or to start a continuous infusion when a PRN bolus may have been enough. For example, sometimes a single dose of haloperidol intravenously might help us get through a period of agitation, and then we might not need to use um, a sedative or, or an antipsychotic uh, on an ongoing basis. Okay. Would you still attempt uh, mobility in a patient like this, someone who's delirious, perhaps somewhat agitated, maybe not severely so? Yeah. If, some, if somebody's kind of squirming around in bed, uh, shifting weight, restless, in some cases, actually mobilizing the patient may actually help. You know, again, if the patient's delirious, we're not sure, are they having pain? Uh, do they have chronic back pain such that laying in bed isn't comfortable for them? Are they having a hallucination or a delusion? Um, most patients, you know, laying down and staring at the ceiling is not a very engaging thing. It's not a way to help orient a patient that they're sick and in the hospital. Having the patient sit upright and making eye contact and interacting with them and having them begin to do uh, activity and mobility may actually help with, with the delirium. We certainly know that, that mobilization is part of a non-pharmacologic bundle for delirium and has evidence to support it helping reduce delirium. So absolutely we would. And in some patients, it may help address their restlessness or agitation. In other patients, it may just they may just get physically a bit tired and then have a sleep uh, after they've had some mobility. But of course, we do need to think about the safety, right? We don't want to be sitting a patient up and and then having them move and self-extubate. So there, there does need to be uh, attention paid to that. But we're fortunate that that the nurses and the rehab people that I work with are, are highly attuned to that. And we do this very, very regularly. And in my ICU for probably a decade or so, we've prospectively measured every potential safety event that's occurred with an OT or a PT session. And we've got lots of data showing that um, 
mobility in our ICU patients is extremely safe with the teamwork from our, our, uh, our clinicians in our ICU team. So you do your best to take a, a conservative approach to this. Um, you again go home, and then the next day you come and you find that unfortunately his agitation continued to worsen overnight. And um, due to you know, real issues with safety and synchrony on the ventilator, he's now sedated with uh, multiple agents. Uh, perhaps he has a, a fentanyl drip, um, dexmedetomidine, maybe something else like propofol or a benzodiazepine. Um, you know, they, they briefly pause these things for an awakening trial in the morning, and they just see severe tachypnea and agitation. So he now seems to be kind of stuck in that loop you talked about, and eventually he has to get off of these things, but he needs to do so in a safe way through his delirium. What, what's your approach to this? Do you have any tricks to kind of escaping this? Sure. So you're right. There is a vicious cycle, and if we're not very careful, we're simply going to exacerbate it and harm the patient and increase the length of stay. So um, nurses, again, play an incredibly important role. When I have a patient like this, I look and see who the nurse is. I've worked in our ICU for, for almost 18 years and look in who the nurse, who the nurse is and go, okay, this is a nurse where I know we're going to be, be able to get through this uh, because the nurse is highly skilled at, at managing this sort of thing. Or sometimes it may be a new nurse or a nurse that, that hasn't, um, doesn't have the same, the same paradigm that sedation is harmful for our patients. So, so there's going to be a lot of skill and a lot of judgment from the nurse that's at the bedside. Uh, so we need to have the shared belief that sedation is harmful for patients, and we should use the least amount for the shortest period possible, at the same time recognizing that we don't want patients to harm themselves or anybody around them. So what we want to do is recognize that we will want to get rid of the um, most deliriogenic medications first. So the propofol or the benzodiazepine is what we're going to want to get through, get stop uh, first. Uh, and we're going to recognize that often the patient will have a period of agitation uh, when that's happening. And the way that we would treat the agitation, if it's dangerous, typically will be with either dexmedetomidine or with uh, intravenous um, uh, haloperidol. And let's say, just for sake of argument, that uh, the patient was bradycardic or hypotensive such that we were using, preferentially using uh, haloperidol in a patient that doesn't have a prolonged QT interval, we, we may write, as I said before, we may write a single dose as a low, low dose. So it might be a milligram or even half a milligram in an older patient. And if that's done nothing, then the next dose, which may be given 30 minutes later would be doubled. And the next dose after that may be doubled. And hopefully we would uh, begin to see some control uh, of the dangerous agitation with the antipsychotic. And then we'd have to see how long that lasts. And then we reach a decision point. Okay, if it seems to last for a while, should we write a PRN um, bolus dose of haloperidol to be used for dangerous agitation with uh, EKGs for QTCs twice a day? Um, and if it seems like we're going to need something regularly, should we start uh, an oral atypical antipsychotic such as Seroquel so that there's simply a more continuous dosing of that? Again, knowing that it doesn't treat delirium, it doesn't reduce the duration of delirium, but it, it, it being there to, to make the patient safe and to, to treat the agitation. So that would sort of be a pathway that we would go through to hopefully get, get out of that, that cycle. 
Um, of course, thinking, is there anything else that might be causing the agitation that we can work on as well, you know, uh, pain or discomfort? Now, um, some time passes, um, and eventually, due to a variety of reasons, this patient ends up having trouble liberating from the ventilator and eventually is traked and receives a peg. And then due to some disposition issues, ends up in your unit for, for weeks, uh, perhaps even months. Are there any changes to your approach in a patient more in their subacute or even chronic phase of, of their illness um, as far as your approach to sedation, managing perhaps continued delirium? Are there additional psychological issues that may present in this sort of timeline? Um, sure. So that, that patient the way that I would uh, phenotype them, if that patient with a trach and a peg, um, hopefully delirium would be resolved by then. And uh, when we've had patients like that, often they're awake, alert, not delirious, and they are engaging in the highest level of rehabilitation activities that we've done. Mo most of the patients like that will have significant muscle weakness, and we will uh, be engaging quite... Um, intensely with uh, interventions by PTs and OTs, such that there might be two or three sessions per day split between PT, OT, and perhaps speech. So PT and OT, you know, their interventions will be activities and, and mobility and, and maybe higher level things like balance and coordination and strength training, depending on the patient. But our speech language pathologist can't be overlooked as well in that this patient that's a longer stay patient like that they're going to be doing an inline speaking valve or talking about switching over to a talking trach. Um, they will then be hoping to give the patient back voice. And if they're in their ICU long enough, then uh, they'll be doing evaluation to see if the patient can safely eat. Even while they've got a tracheostomy on a ventilator, can they safely take some of their nutrition orally, uh, maybe for nutritional reasons or for pleasure reasons, um, so those things will be going on. And then if, if the patient, sometimes these kind of patients have developed um, issues with anxiety, particularly if, if they've got chronic lung disease and they're having difficulty with liberation from the ventilator, sometimes there's a circle of anxiety. And if our nurses see that or our doctors, PAs or NPs see that or our PTOT speech, we do have a rehabilitation psychologist um, named Megan Hosey that works in our medical ICU. And then she would see the patient, for example, maybe it would be for anxiety specifically, or if they've got cognitive issues, it may be around um, cognition. So that would be often be uh, a pathway that that kind of patient would um, go down if they're in our ICU for that prolonged period. Okay. Could you very briefly talk about any differences in your approach to these topics um, in COVID patients? Because it seems like they have been a real challenge in applying a lot of this. So I'm very happy to say in, in my ICU, much of what I've talked about is exactly how patients continue to be cared for. Uh, we were able early in the pandemic to ensure adequate PPE for, for example, for everybody on the rehabilitation team uh, that either has a PAPR or an N95. Uh, and I, I think because we had a long established program with, with lots of trained experts and a multidisciplinary team and leadership and very clear communication between uh, critical care nurses, critical care doctors, and our rehab team, we're able to communicate and, and over, surmount a lot, of, a lot of barriers. 
So, so our programs continued without too much in the way of modification, but of course there's the obvious modification. So I don't want to overlook, we, we have visitor restrictions and uh, we are liberally using video conferencing to have family members interact with their loved ones. And what's so incredibly great to see is the collaboration often that happens between a PT or OT, a nurse, the patient and a family member where that that video conference may happen during a rehab session so that the patient may actually be sitting up in bed looking at their loved one and their loved one may be cheering them on and and engaging them uh, even in patients with with delirium maybe at least helping rouse them and say positive things that has a big beneficial effect on patients on family and on the entire team to to help humanize the patient for us to understand that the patient, um, you know, who they are, especially if the patient has delirium, we don't get to understand that except through family members. So, so, so of course, we know that with the pandemic, we have never, ever in the history of critical care seen so much uh, severe critical illness and severe ARDS. So I don't want to overlook the fact that many of our patients are in prone position. Some of our patients are deeply sedated because they have a neuromuscular blocker infusion running. And these patients may have very long uh, durations of severe ARDS and critical illness. Um, and, and these patients may stay prone for a long period of time and are risk of, of especially injuries to their upper extremities from, from proning. They may have shoulder subluxation. They can't actively participate in, in rehabilitation uh, if they're deeply sedated, paralyzed in prone position. And then if, if the patient's lungs begin to improve and we can stop the neuromuscular blocker, we can begin to decrease deep sedation, we can move them into supine position, then we've got somebody that has a lot of challenges with both cognitive and physical recovery. Uh, and the recovery process takes a long time. And that period of, of uh, hypoactive or hyperactive delirium may be quite substantial if the patient's been exposed to high-dose sedatives with neuromuscular blockers for a long period of time. And they may have a lot of trouble with ventilator dyssynchrony and, and um, lung fibrosis with, with high pressures and, and difficult ventilation. So those patients, it does take a lot of teamwork, a lot of patience, a lot of time, uh, a lot of collaboration communication among everybody on the team and, and a slow and, and steady approach, we're not going to get the PEEP or the FiO2 reduced dramatically because, you know, we're, some of these patients, at least, we found that they've de-recruited and we've taken steps backward. Um, and the same with sedation. We're not going to take and get all of the sedatives off right away because patients may have withdrawal or may have severe agitation. And often we've found in some of these people with very severely injured lungs, all it takes is some ventilator dyssynchrony while they're agitated and then de-recruitment and then the PEEP and the FIO2 need to go up again and we've taken steps backwards. So, so it is going to be a slow and steady approach. And I think one of the most important things is to have a plan and to try to stick to that plan every day so that when, when various people on the team change, if the plan changes every single day, the patient's not going to be making progress. So to try to illuminate what that plan's going to be, and as there's different people on the team every day, we're trying to stick to that same plan. All right, Dr. Needham, thank you so much, and we'll let you go. Brian, what's your take on all this? 
So I think one of the things that I, I kept thinking about during this whole discussion is the concept of culture. Uh, he mentioned several times the you know, multidisciplinary rounding and multidisciplinary involvement. And I think um, that is so critical. You know, coming from someone who has a background as a bedside nurse as well in the ICU, um, I understand that there's a lot of other factors. And I think that's one of the things that's frustrating for us as individual providers is you, you can listen to a discussion like this and go, that's great. That's how I want to run things. Um, and, and not be able to make it happen. Right. Because there's so many moving parts. Um, you know, for one thing, I I think I hear this description of, of, you know, just PRNs. And I think that sounds great from my perspective. And I think it makes total sense for the patient. Um, but it's also as an IC former IC nurse, I hear a lot of work. That's that's labor intensive for the staff, um, and you know I think there's potentially problems you're going to run into with, um, you know I don't don't we don't have enough staff. The staff's too busy. I know we've especially during the pandemic we've seen a lot of nurse burnout from uh, just the amount of work involved in taking care of these patients. To even things that you know change is hard and you're going to have people who say, um, well, we can't do it that way because we've never done it that way. And it is more work and maybe it's not too much work, but it's more work and I'm not interested in doing more work. Um, and so I think that can't be overlooked is the importance of changing your culture. If you're in a place that is looking to do a big paradigm shift from in the way we do sedation and, and even mobility. Yeah, I think I think culture is right. I, I, I my initial training was at Johns Hopkins where Dale Needham is, and uh, one of my first rotations there was in the MICU, and we, he rounded, and that that was my first sense of how things are done. Um, and then you know I moved on to a couple other jobs, and it was it was not the same thing. And I've tried to be part of you know pushing in some of these directions, and it it's uh, you know you can put that word on it culture, and that says it all. But there is so much behind that. And the reason is because doing any of these things is, it may be simple, but it's hard. It's hard to get through that day without starting a sedative drip and, you know, getting the patient out of bed. And every one of these things is more work in, in the majority of cases than you would otherwise be doing. So if you don't have a, a commitment to doing that, you know, Every second little thing, every fourth little thing, that's where you'll drop the ball. That's where it won't happen. And eventually it's not happening at all unless everybody, which means you and the next guy and the other disciplines have all bought into the idea that this is important, even though it's more work. And then eventually, in fact, it may not be so much more because it's you, you have made a habit of it. You've learned to kind of find the benefits of it and so on. But it's it it's it takes so much you know gradual shift over time and on so many different fronts to get from you know where you are to there that it, it's it's real challenging. Yeah, well, I mean, so when I was a bedside nurse, uh, one of the CTICs I worked in, we were early adopters of mobilizing patients on ECMO. We were walking patients on particularly VV ECMO uh, way before most places. I mean, we, the nurses in the unit were invited to speak at conferences uh, about this and how this worked. And when we first started doing it, it was a, 
you know, we can't do this. It's not safe. We don't have the resources. It's too much work, etc. And after we did it for a while, I mean, the nurses in the unit were like, why would I not walk my patient on ECMO? Um, you know, no one ever had to go and say, hey, you got to get this guy up and walk him today because it was happening already because the nurses saw the benefit of it. We saw patients doing so much better. Um, so I think you're right. Like sometimes it's just that initial inertia that you have to overcome of this is going to require more resources. This is going to require more work. Um, yeah, and eventually you it becomes, you know, self-sustaining. Yeah. What the, I like to use the example of, it's like um, you, you intubated patient in bed and the nurses turn them every couple hours to prevent bed sores. You don't have to think about that. It just right. happens. And that's how it has to be. Because if we did have to think about it, it would not happen every couple hours. Right, exactly. But to get to the point where that is part of their culture is a hurdle. Exactly. The other thing I thought of was, you know, I think, and this is a problem I think we run into on a lot of our topics, is you and I and most of our guests come from, um, you know, pretty privileged places, right? We work in big academic centers where there are residents and fellows and PAs and NPs, you know, to the ceiling. Um, you know, even on, I'm on a string of nights right now, even at night, there are a couple of providers in the ICU. Um, but when I started my career as a nurse, I worked in a community hospital where I didn't even know any of the providers because there was not a physician, an NP or a PA in the house after 5 PM. Um, you know, and I think, so this becomes, you know, I keep hearing this, you know, when he was discussing this plan of PRN sedation and all these options, I keep thinking that's going to require me as a provider to be at the patient's bedside frequently to assess things and to sort of guide things. And, uh, I started thinking about, you know, this community hospital where I worked years ago as a nurse, 12 bed ICU with one pulmonologist who worked Monday through Friday, nine to five, the end. Um, and I think, you know, how do you, how do people who are listening to the podcast who are in places like that, they're maybe thinking, but what do I do? How do I manage that? Because at night it's going to be a propofol drip, uh, because there's no one there to guide things. And so I think at that point you have to sort of address, well, what do you do about that? Do you, do you have a protocol? Do you set a plan in place before I leave at five o'clock? I'm going to talk to all the nurses and say, this is the plan for overnight. And, um, you know, call me if there's deviation from the plan, but obviously I'm not going to be here. You can't, uh, I can't just field pages every five minutes all night. Yeah. The, uh, there is a real issue here with with resources and uh, and logistics that y you can't take one of these recipes and just apply it everywhere because the the challenges are different everywhere. You have to start with what you want to achieve, get everybody at the table and say, you know, this is what I want. All right, well, we can't do it that way, but we could maybe do this. Right. And then, you know, the, um, for example, he's talking about you know using analgesia and no sedation on the majority of innovative patients. That that's been done in the literature. You know, there's a, a classic study um, that was showed really great benefits from it. Phenomenal increases in length of stay, vent time, and so on. This was done in Europe, and it was in units where every patient had one to one nursing. Yeah. Um, they used almost no restraints, but almost everyone could have a sitter. Now that is not <laughs> the staffing for the majority of our hospitals. Right. So can you apply that everywhere? Well. <laughs> 
you got to look at other you know ways to go about it. You know, they, I heard one interesting approach. I, I think it might have been at George Washington in D.C. that they would use uh, PCAs for their analgesia, but instead of the patient pressing a button because perhaps they couldn't, the nurse would press the button. And so it was their yeah. way of delivering PRNs, but much easier to do logistically less time to it while still, you know, being right. safe and tracking it. So, I mean, that makes a ton of sense to me as a balance, although maybe you end up giving more drug that way. <laughs> maybe the inconvenience of getting a, the medication and pushing it reduces how much you're giving. So th- there's, a, there's a lot of comp- complicated factors. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I know when I was a CTICU nurse, um, I would talk to nurses who worked in, in Europe, uh, particularly in the UK, who were astounded that we restrained patients. And, you know, as a bedside ICU nurse, I said, all my patients are restrained because I don't want them pulling tubes out. And their pushback was, but you're sitting there with them, right? Well, no, because I have at least one other patient. And again, that's somewhat of a luxury too. I've worked in ICUs and community hospitals where three to one was not uncommon. Um, And sometimes in a pinch, even four to one. Now, obviously that's not a sustainable, safe environment, but it does happen. And even like he was saying, you know, having two patients in adjoining rooms, you have to leave the room, physically leave the room to go see your other patient. Or even like you said, uh, the inconvenience of medication, right? If I have to leave the bedside to go to the Pixis to get that fentanyl, um, then I'm leaving a patient without anyone to watch them. And so I think you're right. Like we all too often, uh, you know, do a study like this and, and show that this is, and we, and we sort of dictate, this is how it should be done um, without really realizing the implications of that uh, across the board. Yeah. It's like, there's, there's three levels to this. The first one is you say, listen, I know it seems like these concepts and practices um, can't be done. And in fact, maybe unsafe, but actually, no, you can keep patients awake. You can walk them around and so on. Uh, and then the next level is the people who are on the ground say, no, but there are actually legitimate reasons why it may not be possible and may be unsafe. And the next level is you say, oh yeah, you're right. I mean, that's also true. Here's Mm -hmm. how we're going to surmount those through, uh, you know, techniques, protocols, equipment, you know, ways that we're going to make it possible. And that's, and that's the other thing, even if everyone buys into this on a conceptual level, how to apply it is a is a, a skilled thing. So if you don't have, say, you know, some providers, some nurses, some PTs, some members of your unit who can show the other people how to deal with these little challenges, no one may be able to figure it out. <laughs> that right. and you know, when you do, then they, they can be more self-sustaining. But in the beginning, everyone's like, "Well, what do we do when the patient does this?" And you're like, "Yeah, good question." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I think uh, this has all been really interesting. I, I hope this has been a little inspirational to, to some people who may be able to make some of these changes in their own unit. I, I think the you know the recent COVID patients have have been such a challenge and have done such a good job demonstrating why these things are important. Uh, we talked about this in our, our show with Nicole King recently. I, I think a lot of the morbidity we're seeing in those patients is because we're ignoring some of these concepts. And then we're acting surprised that the patients are, you know, delirious for weeks, incredibly weak, you know, stuck in bed and on ventilators and so on. So, you know, I guess every every few years we have to learn the same lessons, but hopefully right. we can make some progress. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, folks out there who are listening, we would love to hear your thoughts on this. If you if you've tackled these issues and have you know suggestions or just your experiences, go to Twitter at uh, at ICU Scenarios and um, start a conversation with us. Let us know how things have worked in your experience or what are the challenges you're facing uh, that maybe we haven't talked about. Yeah, and um, we'll we'll put some resources in the show notes if you want to learn a little more. And uh, one of the most phenomenal ways is um, Johns Hopkins and Jill Needham runs this. They do a critical care rehabilitation conference every year. It's going to be in, in November of 2021 this year. Um, and th- this is all that they talk about. How, practically speaking, you can you know, minimally sedate, manage delirium, mobilize your critically ill patients. Um, and it's phenomenal. I, I went a number of years ago. Um, every year it gets better. Um, so we'll put some links to that as well. Yeah, that sounds great. I think this is an overlooked topic, and but certainly one that's very important. All right. Um, I guess we'll see everyone else in a couple weeks then.